All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on the letter of 2 Corinthians. In this recording, we're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, down through chapter 6, verse 2. And before we jump into that, let me just mention a resource on my website at listenerscommentary.com. There's actually all sorts of resources there inside the study hub, but one is uh, right there on the landing page, the homepage, completely free, and it is a 30-page free ebook on how to hear and heed the Bible. It's called Bible and Life, and it gives five strategies for hearing the Bible, that is reading it well, five strategies for heeding the Bible, that is putting it into practice in our life, things that will help us do that more effectively. So completely free. All you got to do is uh, put in your name, your email address, you get access to it. And so if that sounds like a resource that might be helpful to you and guide you in how to uh, read the text well, and then ways to meditate on it and think it through and, and put it into practice in our life. And so that's there at listenerscommentary.com, completely free. All right, let's jump into the content here for this recording, 2 Corinthians 5, 11 and following. And before we look at the details, let's just uh, trace the flow of thought in chapter 4 through the first part of chapter 5. And the reason that's always important, like context is king when reading the Bible, right? When having any conversation with anybody, we want to make sure we hear them in context. Same is true with the Bible. But there are a couple well-known lines out of this section of 2 Corinthians 5 that are so well-known, they cause us to love them and memorize them and hold them dear to our heart, but do so without the overall context in mind. And that means we miss some of the actual nuances and kind of primary um, thrusts of these passages. So let's, uh, let me just trace the flow of thought here through chapter four, the first part of chapter five, to help us make sure we don't forget where we're at in the argument of 2 Corinthians. And so Paul explained in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 why he doesn't lose heart. And he said he doesn't lose heart, and in fact, he still uses great boldness in ministry, even though he's suffering and even though his ministry is marked by weakness. And he does that because he knows that he's going to be resurrected like Jesus was. And he says at the end of chapter 4 that he, he actually focuses on the unseen eternal realities, and that what, that's what keeps him going in ministry. Then Paul followed that up in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, by describing more fully what his hope is specifically regarding the body. He had talked about his body wasting away at the end of chapter 4. So chapter 5, 1 through 10, here's my hope, he says, in short, regarding the body. And he says in a nutshell that if his body is dismantled, he has been promised a new body, a glorious, eternal, supernatural body by the Lord. And even if he should die before the Lord returns and he, he receives that new body, he still gets to be with the Lord, go and be with him while awaiting that future day when he will receive his new body. And therefore, as he says in chapter 5, verse 6, that he lives with great courage. And he aims to please the Lord. So now here in 2 Corinthians 5, 11 and following, Paul just, uh, continues to draw out some of the implications of this for his ministry and for the Corinthian church. And so he begins this section with therefore, referring back to what he has just said in verse 10. What did he just say in verse 10? 
Well, in verse 10, he talked about that we're all going to have to stand before the judgment seat of King Jesus and be evaluated for how we used our lives, whether good or bad. And that's what motivated Paul to want to please the Lord. So therefore, refers back to that idea of standing before the judgment seat of Jesus. And he says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. And so the fear of the Lord then in this context, connected as it is to verse 10, involves that we're accountable to God for our lives and what we do in life and how what we do in life will be evaluated by God. So this phrase looks back to that, knowing the fear of the Lord, and it also looks forward to what Paul is about to say because he knows the fear of the Lord. He and his team, therefore, persuade people. This is one way of living out his ambition to please the Lord in view of the fact that he's going to stand before the judgment seat of Jesus. So he says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade people, but we are well known to God. And so he works to persuade people on one hand, but we're well known to God. And that phrase well-known literally is just made manifest. That is open and clear before God. I wish they would have translated it that way because Paul's used this word several times and it refers to this posture that Paul describes about how his ministry is open before God. It's, that's how he approaches it. And so what we see um, is that Paul's life and ministry really operates in two directions at the same time. He operates towards people and he operates before God towards people because he's seeking to persuade them of the truth of the gospel and of the way of Jesus. And before God, recognizing that he will be evaluated by God uh, for his life and his ministry, and that's the only evaluation in the long run that really matters. And so he operates towards people and open and clear and manifest before God. And that's how Paul goes about his life and his ministry. Now, at the same time, Paul expects that his life and his ministry, as well as the life and ministry of his ministry team, Titus and Silas and others and Timothy, that it's also open and clear to the Corinthians. So it's open and clear before God, but he also hopes and expects that it's open and clear before the Corinthians, as he says in the last bit of verse 11, where he says, and I hope that we are also well-known, same word that means uh, open, clear, made manifest, we are well-known in your consciences. They've seen Paul and his team. They know them. They know how they've acted. I mean, it's not just words on a page for them. It's they, they've, they've heard his tone of voice. They see the way he conducted himself. They see the way he treated those who loved him and those who didn't. They know him. And so Paul anticipates that who he really is and who his team really is is manifest, open and evident to their conscience. Paul then pauses to qualify what he's saying based on one of the main things he's trying to accomplish through this letter. Paul's really walking a fine line here, and he wants to make sure they hear him right. So he kind of pauses after saying that in verse 11 to say this, we are not commending ourselves to you again, but we are giving you an opportunity to be proud of us so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. Now remember, all the different parties involved. You have 
the, the church at Corinth, the majority of whom have come back around and have repented, and now they're, they're re realizing that the way they treated Paul was wrong, and they want to restore their relationship with Paul. But you still have a vocal minority of the church who are opposed to Paul and still running him and his team down, and they're being kind of inflamed by those outsiders whom Paul will call later in the letter the super apostles, who have come in from the outside with letters of recommendation, and they're stirring up the troublemakers. And so Paul's got these three different groups that he's aware of as he writes this letter. And so as we noted a second ago, Paul's actually walking a fine line in what he just said in verse 11, and thus he qualifies it here in verse 12. And the reason he's walking a fine line is because on the one hand in this letter, he's recommending himself to them. He is. But on the other hand, he doesn't want to recommend himself the same way and on the same ground as those super apostles who came in from the outside with letters of recommendation and started running down Paul and his team and their approach to ministry. Paul doesn't want to do that. For Paul, genuine ministry always involves self-lowering, not self-promotion. It includes suffering and self-sacrifice and even weakness, even though by the standards of his day, that made Paul look weak and unimpressive. And Paul has been explaining all of this so far in the letter, and he's going to continue to do so. So in one sense, he has been recommending himself and his approach to ministry to them as a way to kind of repair and rebuild the relationship with that majority of people who have come back around to him. Um, he wants to help him understand him and his ministry more. But at the same time, he doesn't want to get into a war of words with the other people, those still in the church who look down on him and those outsiders who have come in and started stirring up some of the trouble. He doesn't want to get into a war of words with those people. Um, he doesn't want to have to uh, get into a war of words with those who have run Paul down and are promoting themselves as actually true and legitimate and the people they should really listen to. He knows that as Christ's apostle, he doesn't need to do that, right? He, he doesn't need to promote himself or defend himself or assert himself or anything like that. He doesn't want to play that game. In his mind, it goes against the gospel. So when Paul says here in verse 12, we are not commending ourselves to you again, what he really means by that is, we're not commending ourselves and our ministry the same way that other people did. We're not going to run other people down. We're not going to promote and elevate ourselves. That's not the way we're going to do it. But then he adds a contrast to that. So he says, but, and that's actually a law in Greek, rather strong contrast, but here's what we are doing. We're giving you an opportunity to be proud of us so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. And so he doesn't want to get into a war of words with those guys, but he is trying to help them understand his ministry so that he says, you can be proud of us, which is literally to boast in us, boasting in us. He wants to give them that opportunity where they can actually be the ones to defend Paul and respond to the self-promoting super apostles. Uh, they can be the ones to promote Paul and his ministry. They can answer the criticisms of those who oppose Paul and um, who take you know, delight in and take pride in the way people look and how prestige and impressive you know, letters of recommendation and all of that. Paul's like, I'm giving you an opportunity to understand who we are, how we operate, why we operate that way, so you can be the ones to respond to all of that. And then he goes on in verse 13 and says, For if we've lost our minds, it's for God. 
if we're in a sound mind, it's for you. In other words, Paul is saying, even if people think I'm a bit crazy, that's all for God. And if you guys think I'm actually making sense and sane, just know that's for you and your benefit. Whichever way you read Paul, Paul is saying, whichever way you read his life and ministry, just know that it's driven by devotion to God and to their good and their well-being. Now, what exactly is he thinking of when he says this? What does he have in mind? Well, he says this, verse 14, for, again, explaining what he just said, for the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. What he means is, is that the love of Jesus seen in the gospel has so taken over his life that he doesn't live for himself anymore. That's what he's going to go on to explain in the following sentences here in this paragraph. He doesn't live for himself. And some people think that makes him crazy. And he's like, that's my devotion to God in Jesus, right? I'm that devoted to him. And that actually means I'm doing it for your benefit. What does he mean by the love of Christ controls us here in verse 14? Well, grammatically, the love of Christ could refer to Paul's love for Christ. That's possible. But because this sentence actually focuses on the death of Jesus and in what follows the resurrection of Jesus, it seems best to say that the, the love of Christ here refers to Jesus's love, King Jesus's love that is captivated and that controls Paul's life. And when he says the love of Christ controls us, what he means by that, that word controls has the sense of both control and compels. It controls in the sense that it limits Paul's options and choices. His options are limited. Why? Because, because Jesus' self-sacrificial love has changed Paul's life. And that limits his options and his choices in life. Not only that, it compels Paul and his team forward in the sense that it drives them into ministry and a mission. And so the love of Christ controls Paul and his team. Having concluded this, he says, that one died for all, therefore all died. That is, Christ died on behalf of all humanity. Um, in fact, in verse 15, it becomes real clear because he distinguishes all, all humanity, from those who now live in Christ and who have come into Christ. And so Christ died on behalf of all humanity, um, and therefore all died. That is, in Jesus, the death that all humanity merited and deserved because of sin was poured out on and in Christ. So as the representative of all humanity, his death was their death. And what's the goal of all of that? We'll look at verse 15. And he died for all, here it is, so that those who live would no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. So notice how Paul has taken uh, the second half of verse 14 and here into verse 15, and he's just broadened it out. He's been talking about his, his team and his ministry, and he's saying, we're living out what Jesus' death and resurrection aimed at accomplishing. And what it aimed at accomplishing was... Um, our death and our consequent resurrection with him so that we would no longer live for himself. That's the aim or the result of Jesus' self-giving death is to move people to no longer live for themselves, but to live for God, live for Christ. So notice when he says, so that those who, who live would no longer live for themselves. Well, those who live that don't live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again, those are believers. 
Those are the ones who have entered into Jesus' resurrection life, and so they've moved out of death and into life by believing in the gospel, and thus they're no longer living for themselves, they're living for Christ. And this, for Paul and his team, this is what, what it means for the love of Christ to control and to compel them and to lead them into ministry. This is why they do what they do, because this was the whole aim and goal of Jesus' A self-sacrificial death is to change the way people live. And so Paul lives this way because of what Jesus has done for him. Then in verses 16 and 17, Paul draws out like two implications or two results of this fact. And so the first one shows up in verse 16. And what Paul says there is that this fact that Jesus died and that he rose and that it changed the way we live, Paul says... Well, that now changes also how I see people, how I view people, including Christ himself. Having been captivated by the gospel and having been captivated by Jesus' love, Paul now sees people, including Jesus, completely different. And so he says in verse 16, therefore, drawing out the implication, therefore, from now on, we recognize no one by the flesh, even though we've known Christ by the flesh, yet now we know him that way no longer. Paul actually uses two different words for know in this passage. The word that's translated recognize is oida in Greek. And the word have that's translated, we have known Christ, yet now we know him this way. That's the word gnosko in Greek. And he probably uses these two words here, even though they can have a nuance of difference. And sometimes they carry that. Uh, sometimes oida means more like to evaluate the way you see and understand things, grasp things, whereas gnosko can be used in some context more uh, relationally, like intimate knowledge of somebody, right? And they, there may be that nuance of difference here in this sentence, but uh, I think the primary reason Paul uses two different words is just uh, just for stylistic reasons, right? To variety, to use two different words for no, so you not keep repeating the same word over and over again. That's my guess. Although there is likely a nuance of difference in that Paul does know Christ in an intimate, personal sort of way. And so what he says is, there was a time when we knew Christ differently than we know him now. We knew him according to the flesh. Um, there was a time when we used to evaluate people according to the flesh, right? We grasped people, we understood people according to the flesh. What he means by according to the flesh is uh, according to the values and the standards that people evaluate other people, that fallen humanity evaluates other people. Like here's the standards that people use to say, oh, this person is worthy and should be celebrated and all of that. Paul says there was a time when we did that, but not any longer. From now on, we recognize or we know we grasp no one according to the flesh, according to the standards of this world. And even though we used to know Christ according to the flesh, like Paul used to evaluate Jesus, just look at his backstory, and he was so opposed to Jesus and those who followed him that he knew him according to the flesh, and he evaluated him wrongly. And Paul, and Paul says here, yet now we know him that way no longer. And so that's the first result of being controlled by the gospel and being transformed by the gospel that you, you now live differently, not for yourselves, but for King Jesus. Paul says it changes the whole way I evaluate people and I look at people and I uh, grasp uh, what people are and what they are all about. So the first result of not living for themselves any longer, but for Jesus is how they evaluate people. The second result shows up in verse 17. 
And so the second result is that entering into Jesus completely changes who and what a person is. It's not just that the way Paul views and evaluates people has changed. It's that entering into King Jesus completely changes what a person is. And so he says in verse 17, therefore, so 16, therefore, result number one, 17, therefore, result number two, if anyone is in Christ, this person is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. And so when a person moves out of uh, being in Adam, in the world, into Christ, when they move into Christ, uh, everything changes. And that phrase, in Christ, if anyone is in Christ, that's one of Paul's favorite ways to refer to being a follower of Jesus. It speaks of entering into Jesus and entering into his way. It speaks of union with him. And so if anyone has done it, they've entered into Jesus, they've, they're now in relationship with him, and they are following him and his ways. If that's the case, he says, that makes you a new creation. Literally, the sentence reads, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. There's like, there's no restatement. There's, you know, this translation says this person is. That whole phrase is supplies because literally it's just, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. Just as an exclamation, Paul, you know, like throw your hands in the air and celebrate new creation. It is such a momentous, staggering sort of thing that Paul just blurts it out here. And then he describes it in the second half of verse 17. The old things have passed away. Their old values, their old identity, their old, right? Everything that used to define them and mark them and their old way of operating, that's passed away. And behold, the new things have come. And so now, instead of being... Uh, driven by the standards and the ambitions and the values of the world and the flesh and fallen humanity. Uh, people are now uh, driven by and in love with a whole new kind of life and a whole new approach to life that's in Jesus. And yes, there's a lot of unlearning and relearning that has to happen and all that. But Paul's point is, the moment someone enters into Christ, old things are gone, new things have come. All right, we're going to break off our study of this section here just for the sake of time, and we'll, we'll do part two of this paragraph in the next recording. And that's because there's been a lot already in this session, and there's a lot in the next half of this paragraph as well, and I don't want to just race through it. And so let's break it off here, and let me just highlight real quick as we wrap up this first half of this paragraph just this last little idea about if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. And one of the things that stands out to me is, notice, not he should be a new creation or he will be a new creation, but he is a new creation. Uh, all uh, Old things are passed away. New things have come. And this is terribly important. I used to read this verse wrong for so long and thinking I had to be that. But Paul's saying it's already happened. God has recreated me. And so now I have corresponding new loves and new desires. I have corresponding new abilities to live out this new way of Jesus. And in keeping with the overall flow of this, obviously Paul is going to take all of this stuff and apply it to his ministry in the second half. And that's the big context of all of this. But we shouldn't miss that in that context, what Paul is talking about is he's talking about how 
because of what happened in Jesus, Paul, in his ministry, no longer lives for himself, but he lives for other. And that's changed how he views other people. And that's because people now can come into Christ and they can be something brand new. And so both the way we look at ourselves and the way we look at other people has to be shaped by the fact that the gospel makes human beings brand new creations. And part of that is learning not to live for ourselves like we used to, but to live for Christ and to live for the gospel. That's what Paul now does, and that's what we ourselves ought to now do as well. All right, thanks for listening to this session on the Listener's Commentary on 2 Corinthians. The Listener's Commentary is a listener-supported, crowd-funded Bible teaching ministry that is made possible by the generous support of dozens of people all around the world. People who give $5 a month, $10 a month, $50 a month, or more. And they do so because they see the value of simple, clear, down-to-earth teaching of the Bible, the impact it's had on their life, and the impact it's having on the lives of other people. And so, thanks a ton for your support. And if you've been impacted by this ministry in any way, would you prayerfully consider joining the team of supporters and helping this ministry continue to grow and expand and make a difference in the lives of people in the United States and in Australia and New Zealand and in Canada and the UK and in South Africa and in China and Nigeria and... Um, India and all over the world, the Philippines and Zimbabwe, everywhere uh, like this, people are listening to the listener's commentary. And I'd love for you to join the team of supporters so that this ministry could continue to grow and make an impact in the lives of others. Thanks a ton for your support.